come in. We're going to go ahead and start. I know y'all can hear me out there. I see your faces. Uh, welcome to Legacy Church. Um, we're glad you're here. Um, we're going to sing one song of worship up front uh, before the sermon, and then the rest of the worship will be after. Um, and that's just to give you a chance to respond to God um, and respond to his word. But uh, if you want to join us now, we're going to go ahead and sing.
Let's pray. God, uh, I pray today um, that we're reminded of your love for us, God, in the midst of our sin. And uh, God, in the midst of a broken creation that has fallen and rebellious from you. Um, God, we don't live in a Christian country. We don't live in a Christian city. Um, and even though, I, even though there's a lot of people that profess Christ, God, there's a lot of people that don't know you. Um, and God, I pray today that um, you would meet us where we are and uh, God, you would reveal yourself to us and you would continue to reveal yourself to us, God, as we uh, grow to be more like Jesus. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, good morning. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable and happy Mother's Day. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm introducing someone. This is Cindy, and Cindy is a mom. So happy Mother's Day. And she's going to talk to you a little bit, and I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. Don't mess up. We're recording this. Okay. Do my All right. best. All right. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Um, when Hillary asked me to talk today, um, the one word that kept coming into my mind about mothers and Mother's Day was seasons. And for all of us, um, there's always a season. We're hoping to be moms. We our daughters, we become moms. We're now, for me, I'm a grandmother. So Scott and I have four children. Um, two of our kids uh, are mine by birth. Two are mine through adoption. And now we have six grandchildren. And the Lord has blessed us so much in that. But the thing that I think he has taught me the most is that through every season of our lives, whether we're going through trials or um, we're having times of great celebration and ease, the Lord is, is with us. He's present and um, he has something to teach us through all of these seasons. Um, I think the greatest wisdom about the seasons of our lives comes from Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And it says he has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity into the hearts of men. So life is a progression of seasons with everything that's happening to us that's under God's control and his timing. 
and he wants us to rest in each of the seasons in our lives. And for us, we're kind of on the other side of, excuse me, parenting. And um, that's kind of a hard thing for some of you mamas who are just starting out. Um, the empty nest is kind of painful. And then along come the blessing of grandchildren, but that too is just a season. So for me, the important thing is just to hang on to um, the blessings of the Lord in each season of our lives and just to rest in that. That's great. Are you done? done. That's why you're looking at me? Okay. You did great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Mother's Day, <clears throat> that's a great opportunity for us to really celebrate the investment and the sacrifice um, of moms. And I think it's also an opportunity to celebrate in their mothering the fact that in their mothering, moms reveal a little bit about what God looks like, that it is not so easy to see otherwise. I mean, we don't readily see, I guess, the mother-like nurturing quality of God. We don't see those characteristics of God because we're usually focused and drilled in on the masculine characteristics of God. Those are the ones that are emphasized. But it's important to remember that both man and woman were made in the image of God. It's not to say that God is a female, right? But that the qualities that we see in moms, those are qualities that we see in God. And we actually see this in Jesus's life as well. You'll, you'll catch this brief little moment where you see this nurturing angle of Christ that is more mother-like than it is father-like. You see it in Matthew 23. Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? and you were not willing. You know what's interesting is some of the greatest Christian thinkers, I'd say of modern history, so think C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, they were all big on this. They would say that anytime you see something beautiful in the world, something good, that it's really meant to draw your attention to what beh what's behind that which is good, to show you a little bit about what God looks like. When you see a waterfall, when you see kids laughing, um, when you see a mom's care, those are moments that point to a better reality in God, kind of like a, a piece of art. You look at some artwork, and you see its brilliance, and it actually enlivens the soul. It captures your imagination. It actually captures things that you can't put words to. It's how powerful it can be. And at the same time, doesn't it reveal a bit of the brilliance of the artist that created such art? It's intriguing, right? It at least invites you to explore how creative, how innovative, how thoughtful the artist is so if you enjoy something in this world, look beyond it to the one who created it. And therefore, when you see a mom, be a good mom, should help you see God as a nurturer who is steadfast, a nurturer who's consistent, a nurturer who is very thoughtful in the same way that God is thoughtful and very present with us and very long-suffering with us. Listen, even if, if you're a lady in here without kids, kind of like what Cindy was saying, when that could be for a garden variety of reasons, too, why you don't have kids. I think there is a gift and a contribution that you have by God's design 
to mother those around you, even if they're not of your bloodline. And I'm not talking about fostering. Is, I mean, that could be in there, but I'm also talking about mentoring, what it means to mentor the people around you. I mean, I have a mom. She loves me, right, if you can believe that. She loves me. We talk all the time. I call her every week like a good son. We have great conversations, and yet there have been other women along my journey as a Christian and as a man. There have been many women who have mentored me, even if they wouldn't have called it that, that they have shown me what it means to be a man, how to handle a woman, how to speak to a woman, how to be nurturing. So as we celebrate Mom's Day today, don't allow your celebration to find its full stop in just mom, right? But to look behind what makes mom, mom, what's beyond mom, and actually celebrate God himself. I mean, today, you should take some time to celebrate your mom. Even if you have a sketch relationship with your mom, by the way, she provided. At least showing that angle of who God is. So we should certainly thank mom and then thank God for his nurturing and his sacrificial care for us. Because mothering done well, it should show us Jesus well. Amen? But alas, I'm not preaching on moms today, okay? <laughs> I'm not preaching on moms today, and even though today is a what you would call a money passage in the Bible, I'm not talking about money today either, so you can relax, right? I know as a pastor and as a preacher, if you start talking about moms, you mathematically lose half the room. I know if you talk about money, you mathematically lose all of the room, right? <laughs> We're not passing a plate today, not taking a special offering today. And I don't think there's anything wrong with either one of those, right? We've flirted with passing plates in the past. Um, we have taken up special offerings in the past. I think there's a time and a place for things like that. We're not doing it today. I have to lead with that because if I don't, you'll be tempted to shut down on me. Because as soon as money is mentioned, everybody wishes that they went on a hike today instead of came here, right? Even though it's rainy and mud, you'd still rather be out there in that or going to the dentist, or doing your laundry, or something like that. And I'm not avoiding this topic because it's a tough topic. If you've been here at any scope of time, that would just make me want to preach on it a little bit more, right? Because it is a tough topic. But the passage that we're looking at today in the series we've been kind of mowing through actually looks beyond money. It's not really a money passage as we know as money passages. So it's going to be helpful for us. But I think it is important to just note, even from the get-go, that some of us struggle in this room when the money topic is even brought up. Financial generosity is mentioned, and everyone starts to kind of seize up. And I think for some of you, it's because you're angry. You've seen churches abuse money in the past. It's made you angry. Let me tell you, you probably should be angry, right? Or at, at least suspicious. I get angry, too, when I see it. You should ask questions. You should scrutinize how the church capital C uses people's money and how this church uses your money. You should ask questions. You should. You know, as soon as I heard or read that the fire in Notre Dame raised just under a billion dollars in 24 hours, I got real grumpy. Real grumpy. I remember thinking, that's interesting. A billion dollars, nine zeros. What could be done with that kind of money? billion dollars. I mean, besides rebuild a dumb cathedral. I know I, I'm not supposed to call it dumb. None of you have ever even been there. None of you are even planning on going there. You probably had to look on Wikipedia to see where it was at, right? 
No one cares. A billion dollars, though. Here's what I know, because I'm a church planner. There's, there's still a church planner deep down inside of me. You can pay for almost 6,000 church plants with that kind of money. Mathematically, this is what it means. If it's a healthy church plant, I'm just plucking the healthy ones out. We'll throw away the ones that are not healthy. Just if the healthy ones do what healthy ones do, that could, over the course of 12 years, represent half a million new disciples. Half a million. That doesn't even count all the marriages that found repair, all the cities that got the taste of the gospel because of those healthy churches, right? Or about how all the, all the small businesses we could build in impoverished areas, teaching those who are marginalized, equipping those who are marginalized. Think of all the students we could scholarship, the wells that could be dug, right? Clinics that can be built. I mean, I've been to uh, the, the clinic in Bombard. Forget a billion, a million dollars. That would change healthcare in Bombard probably forever. Probably forever. Infant mortality would drop like a rock if we had a hundred, just a million dollars. A hundred million dollars? Forget about it. It could change the country as far as healthcare, right? A billion dollars, nine zeros. But that's okay. We're going to build a cathedral instead. And I know it's got to make some of you mad that I'm even saying that. I get it. It's got value. I have a household full of artists, a household full of them, right? And when I was grumpy at dinner the other day when we were talking about this, they all turned on me like I was the one that set the fire. I get that there's value in it. There's history. There's significance. But nine zeros. I'd rather see one neighborhood anywhere in the world be impacted by the power of the gospel because of maybe good use of that money. So if you're like me, you probably see headlines like that and you get grumpy too. Or the headlines with prosperity churches, with prosperity ministers that can navigate and maneuver an entire audience to maybe change the landing gear on the jet, right? And you hear that and you get grumpy inside. I cuss in my heart whenever I hear stuff like that. It makes me upset when I see stuff like that. I start blowing gaskets. So maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been directly affected so that any time the topic of financial generosity gets brought up, you blow fuses. I'm just saying, don't do that today. Don't do that today because I'm not looking at your bank account. Our jet's landing gear is fine, at least for the meantime. And I think other people in here, we don't squirm because we're angry. We squirm because we're embarrassed. Whenever the topic of financial stewardship is brought up. Maybe you feel a little bit of shame come over you because you just want to be more generous, but it feels out of reach. And it feels like it judges you because the amount you give out of whatever comes into your account is not what you want it to be. It's not what you want it to be. You want it to be more. And I get that. It's tough, right? Maybe your circumstances, maybe they've taken a tough turn. I've been there. The bills, they seem to just eat you alive. There's no margin left. Listen, you're generous with what you have, but you want it to be more, and I get that. And I just say thank you, by the way. Thank you. And don't let it judge you. Thank you for being generous, and the Lord does notice that. Maybe some of you have shame whenever the topic is brought up because you've made some bad decisions, some financial foolishness in your past, and you'd love to just get in a time machine and go back and talk yourself out of doing some things. Right? And now you find yourself with debt that has accrued and problems that have followed you. And so you have regret. But there is grace for past mistakes, is there not? There's great grace for us. So be sure not to let that color how you see any teaching on financial generosity. And don't let that regret turn into a depression. 
Maybe you feel shame because you do have the capacity to be generous. Therefore, you have the capacity to be a good steward of God's finances, but you don't. You, you have forgotten that it's not your money. You handle it like it's your money. And when you do that, it's a manager acting like the manager owns somebody. And anytime you read in the news where a manager tries to act like an owner, it usually looks like theft. And nothing really changes. That is exactly what it is. It's not yours. God's given you money to manage for his glory, but in sin, you've taken it and you've managed it for your own glory, right? But the conviction you might feel, even if something like that is said, I mean, hear me when I say that's a kindness of God. The conviction, not the condemnation, not the voice in your head that says you are wrong, but the voice that says that is wrong. That is a kindness of God for you because God loves you too much to let you continually be enslaved to the adoration of money, to the demand that money, because money is not your idol, you are actually using money to feed your idols, right? And God loves you too much to just let you sit in that. Sounds a lot like a money sermon all of a sudden, doesn't it? For one, that's not really a money sermon. It's not. We're looking at something deeper than money, but I have to speak to those hurdles that pop up. This passage, money is the lens that we look through, but it's not the topic, right? Jesus is going to use money as more of an illustration, more of an application than the main idea of what he's talking about. So if you have your Bible, look at Matthew 6. We're actually moving from chapter 5 to chapter 6 in the book of Matthew and this series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't have a Bible or you're not using a device, we'll put it up on the screen for you. I'm going to read in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to be very helpful. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is talking about practicing righteousness in the form of almsgiving right here, giving to the needy, financial generosity for our purposes today. He's not really looking at the financial transaction, though. You can kind of tell just in the reading, he's looking behind it, what's going on underneath it. And it might be helpful to know that Matthew, as a book, is structured around a few, a handful of discourses or sermons, okay? Um, we happen to be in the first one, the, the most popular one, I'd say, the Sermon on the Mount. But just as an aside, as a freebie, if you want to know what a disciple looks like, these handful of sermons or discourses in the book of Matthew do a fantastic job of showing the shape and the life of a disciple, right? It does a good job, as good a job as any of the other books. And you've probably already seen that already. So for those of you who mentor or disciple others, and you all should ask that question, who am I discipling? That's another sermon. I won't do it today. But who is it that you're mentoring, discipling? This is a great text to use, just the book of Matthew. And I only say that because it can kind of get overwhelming sometimes in the process of making disciples what to do with them. Like, do we read a book together? If we go through the Bible, where do I take them? Matthew proves to be a very good field guide, very good playbook to go through. Let it do the heavy lifting. Just read it through with them 
answer their questions. It's going to be a great way to help make disciples. But to this point, we've spent our time in chapter 5 looking at kingdom principles. Principles, right? But now we're starting to see a shift from kingdom principles to kingdom practices. That's why the wording sounds like it does right here, right? He says, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware. We don't really use that word anymore today, right? We don't start off our thoughts with beware. We see it on signs, red or yellow signs with a skull on it or an exclamation point. Or I saw one the other day that had something to do with a dog. I got a little too close to the house, heard the dog, saw the sign, backed away, right? That's the only time we really use the word beware, but all it means is alert. Be, be careful. Be on the watch, right? Look out. And what are we looking out for right here? We're looking out for acting like a disciple of Jesus in order to feed our idols. In order to feed our idols. And in this case, the idol would be reputation and approval. He says, don't do something really cool to be seen. To practice righteousness, to be seen. And that that phrase, to be seen, is rendered from the same word that gives us our word today, theatrics, to be theatrical, right? So Christ is saying, be on high alert. Be on high alert from being a stage actor, an actor, a pretender to get something from other people. And this is what it looks like if we were to just kind of stick it in our real world here. It means to see somebody, pretend you see somebody that's spiritually impressive to you, right? You see them and they have the makeup of Maybe everything you would want to be. Maybe you saw them on YouTube, you read a book, you just know them, something like that. And you think, man, that, that person's impressive. Like, if I was holy and spiritual like that person, then I would be impressive. I mean, I want to be impressive like that person. That person impresses me. I should know because I'm impressed. And if I was impressive like that person, other people would be impressed with me. Therefore, I'm going to be impressive. So we set the bar to be impressive, spiritually impressive. But not because we enjoy Jesus so much, it just exudes from our life. And not because we enjoy Jesus so much that we're okay with how much he loves us even on days we're not impressive. The only reason we want to be impressive is because we need the applause. We need to be loved. We need to be liked. That's what Jesus is really speaking at in this passage. He's using generosity as his illustration as his example. You see, back in those days, and it sounds weird to us now, I'm not convinced it was not weird back then, okay? It might have been a little strange back then. Somebody comes out, they play a trumpet, everybody looks, and then someone that's religiously elite comes out and starts handing out money to poor people. That sounds pretty cool to me. Someone's handing money to poor people. They're giving it out. But they're not doing it because they love poor people. They're doing it to look good, and it would look good. You'd be impressed. You'd be looking at it. The trumpets told you to. You'd see what was going on, and they did all of that to get something in return, and that is your adoration, your claps, your likes. You know what's intriguing about GoFundMe is that we can give anonymously, but we usually don't. (laughs) You notice that? We can Being recognized for what we give, being admired for that, that's pretty common. It's pretty common. And I'm not saying that if you've ever given a gift on GoFundMe and your name is up there that you're hunting for approval, all right? I'm not saying that. I couldn't know the reasons for why you give to that or why you put your name up or click anonymous. That's between you and the Lord. But it does seem hard to click anonymous, does it not? Go and look and see for yourself. It's just not the norm. 
We see major league philanthropists and big businesses advertise what they give to causes. Politicians will do it here in the next year or two as we look into their giving statements too, right? Won't they be measured by that? What they give, how much they give? You know, there's a cultural export. His name is Jim Gilmore. He made up a word for this. It's narcissthropy. I will say it again. Narcissthropy. It's taking the word narcissism and philanthropy and putting it together. This is the idea. The idea is I will give and I will even be sincere and I will even have meaning. I might shed a tear. I will give something generous, but there is a hook. It has to afford me something down the road. It has to get me something down the line. And this is how we come out of the womb, by the way. That's not some innately evil thing that only insidious people do. We're all narcissists coming out of the womb. Pleasing God, enjoying the generosity with only him, that's good, but it's second place to other people knowing about it. D.A. Carson would say this. He says, the goal of pleasing the Father is traded for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing men. And Jesus calls it stage acting. He calls it hypocrisy. But the thing is, is this level of hypocrisy, it's really hard to see. It's sneaky. You know, back before World War II, or at least when the U.S., before the U.S. got involved in World War II, there was a book that was published. And before then, no one had ever heard of this guy, but Dale Carnegie wrote a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Some of you have heard of that book. That's how old that is, by the way, right? It's considered the seventh most influential book in America by the Library of Congress, which is why it sold 15 million copies. I mean, this guy's been dead for a while, right? It still sells. It still sells 100,000 copies a year. That is a lot, right? I mean, if you sell three or 4,000 a year, that's pretty good. That's considered really, really good. I mean, maybe even above average. And I remember walking through my office the other day thinking, golly, I don't even know anyone that has that book. I don't know anyone that's read that book. And I took a glance up and I have it, I have it sitting on my shelf. I think, how did I get that book? I never even bought that book. Somebody bought it and gave it to me. Somebody bought it. I have it. But Warren Buffett says it was a turning point for him. He still has it in his office. Charles Manson said the same thing. He said that book changed how he would handle people. And out of the whole self-help genre in the book world, that's number one. It's the very, very first self-help book ever considered written. But here's the thing. It hasn't aged very well. It's been critiqued in the early days, for sure, like all books. But as it ages, it's being critiqued more and more and more. Interesting, there is a theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf. And he's probably done the most work on the effects of Carnegie's um, work on the church. And he says this. Now, listen, he's quoting Carnegie. This is Dale Carnegie's voice right here. Whether it's friends or money you want, be assured that showing genuine interest in people and giving them presents will get you there. Period. He just said it. If you really want friends, here's what you got to do. You got to buy them presents. Get them presents. Be, be compassionate when you give it to them, and you'll get what you want. Be sincere in your giving, but not at the cost of your personal interest, right? This is leaked into the church. Not because Dale Carnegie is so influential, he's affected the church. It's just that he was able to capture an idea that already came imprinted on our souls. He took something that we all intuitively knew, and he just packaged it really well. And apparently he had a really good publisher, it sounds like, right? But it's just narcissism dressed up as generosity, or as Wolf calls it, the counterfeit coin. The counterfeit coin. And that's as old as the Old Testament, isn't it? Unanonymous gifts. 
I mean, that's been around for a long time. They seem sincere in the moment, but there's a hook on the end of it. Personal interest is in mind because, after all, anonymous gifts, they just feel like wasted gifts. Wasted. So it's brilliant what Jesus is doing right here. He's not asking, are you generous? We're about to see. He's assuming they're generous. He's assuming that. He's not asking, are you generous? He's saying, why are you generous? Why? I'll ask the same thing to you. Why are you generous? Why? You see, Jesus assumed they were because in the Old Testament statutes, they were giving, depending on who you read from, between 23 and 28%. National average today, just below three, right? These were big givers, big givers, highly, what we would say, generous people. And Christ is not saying, would you be generous? Are you generous? He's saying, why? So why do you do it? Why do you give? And not just your money, by the way. Can we zoom out and not, not be maybe odd about this passage? We're not just talking about money. We're talking about your time, too, as well, right? I mean, time is money. And your talents, which are probably more valuable to you than your money. Your time, your talents, and your treasure. All of what you would invest. All of what you would give and say, hey, I'm being generous with this. I'm being generous with my calendar. Being generous with my time. I'm being generous with how I volunteer. I'm being generous with how I serve. I'm being generous with what I give. All of those things. Why do you do it? Because listen, the trumpets we blow, they look different today, but we still try to communicate, hey, look at me. I'm being very generous over here. Do you see me being impressive over here? Spiritually impressive. I could get more trumpets. Do you see it? Here's the hard truth. When we give with this heart, we're not being generous. We're poaching instead. We're actually poaching. I mean, all poaching is, when I say the word, you think of some like rhinoceros without a horn. That's pretty close to what it really is. Poaching is where you, you, uh, you go somewhere you shouldn't go and you take what you shouldn't take. It's trespassing added with theft, right? And that's what we do. We go where we don't go, supposed to go and we take what really doesn't belong to us. And when I do this to you, what is it that I'm poaching if it's not your approval? Your approval, your attention. It looks generous. It's the opposite. It's not generous at all. Or maybe we could drill down and capture more of the room, right, which is always important. Are you silent and anonymous, secretive with your generosity, but then later you pat yourself on the back for being so secretive? hey, maybe the trumpets aren't for man after all. Maybe the trumpets are for God. For him to see your generosity. Hey, God, I hope you saw that. I hope you saw me being generous just then. I know you did. I know you know that that was a really big deal for me. And listen, I'm sincere about it. I really wanted, I wanted to give that. I wanted to give that. But I could really use more of that, or I could really use more of your attention, or I really, I crave your approval, or I really want you to like me more, I want you to love me more, I want you, I want more of you. Maybe our trumpets aren't for man, maybe for the Lord. See, the problem really in all of us is that we want to impress man. Maybe we want to impress ourselves. We definitely want to impress the Lord. And why are we doing it? To get something that we've already had given to us, to get something we already have. You know, a quick question that comes up is, does this mean that we should not encourage and affirm other people when they are being impressive? Does not mean that. Affirm away. Whenever you see somebody doing something that you think is impressive, tell them. Encourage them. 
right? I'm all excited about that. I mean, I see some of you do some very impressive things. I look forward to the chance to telling you that. I always look forward to it. Man, I can't wait to tell them how much that meant to me, how awesome that looked. I think that's great because Jesus is not saying beware of encouragement. Not red sign, yellow sign, exclamation point encouragement. He's saying hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. And what is the reward for a hypocrite? There is one. We're hearing that if you do give a counterfeit coin, you do get a different reward, right? There is a reward for a stage actor. For a hypocrite, you'll get praise. You'll get hand claps. And here's, here it is. Then that's it. Full stop. You won't get any more than that, right? In other words, if I break my back to impress you spiritually, you know what reward I get from you? Whatever you feel like giving me. And it could be nothing. That little flutter of the heart for 0.96 seconds, and then it's gone. And then it vanishes, leaves me wanting for more, which means I have to be even more impressive, right? Hear how exhausting that is? Some of you know how exhausting that is because you're there. You've been there. It's hard. And so Jesus rescues us from this maddening, never-ending, exhausting expedition to be impressive and sound trumpets for everyone to see that we're not the person that we really are. He rescues us from this attempt to squeeze reputation out of each other. And how does he do it? By giving us a reputation. This is fascinating to me when it comes to the gospel. God rescues us from being stingy by being generous to us. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, but think about it. God, this is to, to show you how much he loves you, he goes rifling through the treasure chest of his cosmos, looking for something that shows you how much he loves you. Gets to the waterfalls, not valuable enough. Gets to the mountains, not valuable enough. Gets to any piece of his creation that says, none of this really shows my love like I want to show my love. And so he just comes and brings himself. He says, I'll have to do that's how much he loves. He gives himself. He's the deepest treasure. And he didn't do this to impress you because he's needy. He did something impressive because you're needy. That's the beauty of it all. God and Jesus, he carries this perfect reputation all the way to the cross. And that's where he swaps it out with our needy reputation. It's damaged. It's full of trumpet blowing and acting and pretending. And he swaps, and upon this swap, he commits to change us. And he doesn't just change us into a better version of ourselves. He changes us into a closer version of himself. I love this. This is one of my favorite passages. It's in 2 Corinthians, and where Paul is saying that we are transformed. We're transformed into the same image. Image of who? Image of God. No, no, but Jesus is the image of God, so to look more and more like Jesus, that's how that works. So we're being transformed more and more to look like Jesus from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. We're being changed. We're being molded. And that means if we look more and more like Jesus, that means we look more and more generous because God is generous showing us his generosity and the very fact that there is an incarnation, the very fact that he'd even bother coming to such a broken and flawed people. He's a generous God. And so how are we molded? To be generous, to be a generous people. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because we are in his image and we are free now to be generous. We're free now. 
I mean, when you read the book of Revelation, if you have a digital copy of the Bible, go to Revelation, hit control F, and put trumpet in. See how many times that word comes up, the book of Revelation. <laughs> it comes up a bunch. Here's the thing. He's not looking for you to be impressed there. He's not trying to get your attention so you go, oh, that's incredible. He's doing it because it's a king on arrival. That trumpet's announcing a king, the one who puts death in its own grave, the one who births life and new life to us, the one who created everything that you will ever see with your eyes, the one who dreams new colors you've never seen, the one who gives us the Holy Spirit to change us, the one who cares for us. His trumpets, they announce him. They announce him. And when we fix our heart on this generous God, this generous, good God, it breeds a generosity on this earth, at least in his church, right? Because it removes your need to be applauded. You, you don't, there's no demand anymore. There's no demand to be impressive. You don't have to do things to get the attention of others. All of that's gone. This is what Robert Murray McShane says. He's a theologian of old, and he says, There are many hearing me who now know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. I hope you hear that. Read that again. There are many hearing me now who know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. It requires gospel change, a brand new heart. So listen, as a Christian, as a Christian, you are free to give generously, absolutely free, without the hope of trying to secure something for yourself from men, from God. You don't need the publicity. You're free from that. You don't need more favor from God. He's given you full favor. You don't need a new reputation from man. God's given you the best reputation that can be given. So if all of this is true, then how do we give? How do we give without being a hypocrite? He says, but when you give to the needy, which he says twice, that's how we know he assumes that people are generous. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. I know people get weird with that passage. I'm not going to get weird with that passage, I promise, okay? <laughs> All this is is just to show you a contrast. That's contrasting with trumpets. You can give with trumpets or you can give in secrecy. That's all he's doing right here. But this is as easy as it is to see that contrast, not so easy to give in secret, is it? It's not so easy to give. In fact, let's say without the gospel, it's impossible. It's impossible to do something truly impressive and yet no one be impressed because they don't know you did it because it's been a secret. Big question usually arrives around this passage. Does giving in secret contradict the whole idea of us being a city on a hill that is unhidden and yet seen by all, where our light shines before others so that they may see our good works? Is there a contradiction there? Nope, there's not. There's not. When people see a generous church, just like what we've been saying all morning, they see what's behind the generous church and they see an image of a generous God. When people experience a benevolent church, a hospitable church, a grace-filled church, they're able to see through us a picture, a more complete picture of a hospitable, benevolent, grace-filled God. That's how it works, right? I mean, if we were able to take a magic wand, right, and everybody out of joy and love increased to where the whole church is not averaging 2% in their giving, but 12 or 13 or 15, we're talking about 
trillions of dollars landing on the needs of this world. Not billions anymore, trillions of dollars landing. And the world would see that, would it not? We would be a city on a hill for sure. But here's the thing, if we did that to look impressive, they might be impressed, but we would fail to image God, right? Our coins would be counterfeit. But if we did it humbly and without fanfare, then the world would ask, why? Why? Don't you want recognition for that? Don't you need recognition for that? Right? Now, here's the thing. God will use our giving even when it's stained by some weird motive that we have. God's going to use whatever he wants to use to further his purposes. I'm actually very amazed that he does this. I'm very thankful that he does this. It's his prerogative to how he does this, but we do know he does this. But here's some diagnostic questions I'm going to leave you with. I want you to be thinking about these as you take communion. I want you to be thinking about these as you sing. They've been helpful for me. They've been hard to ask, but they've been helpful. Would you be content living a simple and godly life if it was an unknown one? Unknown. Would that be enough to be obscure, to be invisible, but to live a godly life? I mean, if you didn't have any trumpets, no accolades, if you didn't get a whole lot of attention, could your heart just be satisfied with the eyes of the Father on you saying, well done, that's cool. That's really cool. You're a good manager. I like your heart. Would that be enough for you? And what happens in you when you know that you should be mentioned and yet you're not mentioned? How do you feel when you're glossed over for something? Right? Oh, listen, in my own heart, I'm ashamed at what happens when I feel passed over. I'm ashamed of what happens in my heart when I feel invisible, missed. And in those moments, the ones where my trumpets don't get me enough attention, and those moments where I'm deeply ashamed of how deep my sin really goes, I see how needy I am for the gospel. I see how glad I am that there's grace, even for hypocrites, even for stage actors. I'm glad there's grace. I'm glad there's a, an outstretched arm. I'm glad that my God doesn't say, well, I love you, but I don't really like you very much right now. But a God that says, I like you. Look, there's room for us to repent in this. Go ahead and stand with me. There's room for us to repent in this. And let me just help you in that in case that's hard, because I know I always lead the end of a service by saying something like, church, there's room for us to repent. There's room for us to turn. And I'm a big fan of there being repentance in sermons, because I believe that if there's not repentance in a sermon, it's not really a sermon. It's just a teaching, right? But there is room, and if you're struggling with that, how about something that sounds a little bit like, Lord, there's something in my heart that's not satisfied with your reputation. There's something in me that's just not content in how you approve me and how you see me. I need trumpets. There's just something there. I need trumpets. I need high fives. I need pats on the back. Help me find, by the power of your spirit, a sweet satisfaction and a deep, contented nature so that I don't even really care when I'm passed over or glossed over or others get the glory for what I've done or I just am invisible. I'm in the margins. I'm a footnote. It just doesn't affect me. I'm so satisfied in you, Lord, that does not have a grip on my life. 
Lord, teach me to be generous with my time and my talent and my treasure. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the gospel-shaped thing to do. It's because I'm free to do it. I'm free. And then hear this. I'm going to repeat McShane again. There are many hearing me now who know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. They do not love to give. Friends, listen, I agree with him. And those are some heavy words, are they not? Are they not to use our generosity as a litmus test as to really the state of our heart? To give largely, liberally, not grudgingly at all requires a new heart, a brand new one. Ask yourself this. What kind of heart do you have? Look at how you give your time, your talent, your treasure. And I don't even care what you give. Why do you give? Why do you give? What kind of heart is giving that? Listen, if that's you and you need a new heart lifted from the grave, I want to pray for you. Because you cannot be generous unless you've received generosity. And if you've received generosity, you can't help but be generous. This is the way it works. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being a generous God. I thank you, Father, for being a benevolent, gentle God. And not just a God, but a God who loves and likes a room full of hypocrites and stage actors. Because, Father, even if, even if we don't build trumpets around us to sound whenever we're impressive, we certainly like it when they sound just on accident. We take refuge in the fact that others notice us. We take refuge in the fact that we're not invisible. We take refuge in the fact that we're significant in this this temporary time and place. But Lord, that we would find our significance solely in you. Lord, I know that there's nothing wrong with being impressive here. There's nothing wrong with being significant. But we don't base our identity and our satisfaction off of that. Not as your people. That's really what your Sermon on the Mount says, is my people are going to be different. My people are going to be different, you say, even in why we give. So, Lord, as we, as we examine our own hearts in this, Lord, show us where we're trying to prove to man or even prove to you through our giving that we are worth something, that we're looking for something. We're either looking for each other to give us applause or we're looking for you, Father, to come closer to us and give us applause. Help us turn from that. And Lord, send your Holy Spirit to help us find such a deep satisfaction in you that we're free. We see the freedom. We see the freedom to give generously, even if no one ever knows about it. And Lord, I just pray for those in here who they don't know how to be generous for any other reason besides just that's what culture says is a way to find happiness here. But Lord, that they've never experienced your generosity to them. But today would be a day that they experience and taste of your generosity to them. And certainly they become generous disciples. Certainly. Lord, that you would visit them, that you would take the heart of stone from them and give them a heart of flesh. Lord, that even this morning you'd be calling them close. You'd call them home. Lord, we love you. We thank you as we go into this time of singing and this time of prayer, this time of communion announcements and fun and fellowship, Father, that we just, in this moment, Lord, we give to you. We answer your call in this moment. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Joys, oh bright heaven's sun. 